0: You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter and this is part three of a series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that uh, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. We'll finish our reading there at the end of Matthew chapter 2. Now, of course, uh, again, if you've grown up in the West uh, and grew up in a Christian setting or at least a nominally Christian setting, it's likely that you're very familiar with this story. You've seen lots of Christmas cards and paintings with the wise men. You've maybe sung songs about them. We three kings of Orient are, uh, or as, a, as a, with gladness, men of old. Um, and you may well have played one of the wise men in a nativity play, walking in with a, a cloak over your shoulders, and probably a crown on your head, carrying a present for the baby Jesus. So familiar words, but words that we could easily uh, misunderstand if we're not careful sometimes around Christmas particularly our understanding is so clouded by our experience and particularly nativity plays uh, and we can miss some of the finer details and first of all these wise men uh, are really called magi. The uh, Greek is magi and magi which is related to our English word magic but the magi were a class of of priests astrologer uh, and astronomers. So they were stargazers, but they would have been into uh, astrology in the region and the, to the east of um, Israel, which we would now call Iran uh, and possibly Iraq, but certainly in those eastern regions. In the Old Testament, you already get uh, this group of people in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, there's a reference that uh, in the King James version, for example, is translated as, uh, as uh, wise men. It's the same idea. Uh, they were probably involved in the Zoroastrian religion, which was a, a Persian religion um, that uh, believed in this god Zoroaster. I'm sorry, not a god, but followed this prophet Zoroaster, uh, who had taught uh, about the worship of one God but believed in a kind of dualistic good mixed with evil in the world? So, uh, monotheistic like Judaism, but not like Judaism in its understanding of how evil and good are intermingled in the world. It's uh, an ancient religion that is still existent today. But these uh, followers of that religion, these priests in that religion, come from the East. Uh, possibly, as I say, from modern day Iran or or Iraq, where they uh, would have been involved in astrology stargazing, they are not described as kings uh, that that idea comes from a a, a really a, a misapplication from the Old Testament. So there are a number of verses in the Old Testament that talk about kings. Uh, coming to worship the Messiah, Isaiah 60 verse 3, Psalm 68 verse 29, Psalm 72 verse 10. Um, these all speak about kings coming to fall down. Um, and so uh, there was a, a distortion in Christian tradition that then thought of this as the fulfillment of that. And of course, they do bring gifts that sound kingly, don't they, the uh, the gold and Um, and so on sounds like the gifts suitable for a king, Um, but they are not kings. Uh, That is a traditional um, addition to the text. And uh, of course, tradition also says there were three of them and has various different names and stories that are told about them. The names traditionally are Melchior, who was supposed to be a Persian scholar, and Caspar, uh, and Balthazar, who was supposed to be from Babylonia, um, and, of course, uh, those are all um, really speculative. We don't have their names in the in the New Testament. In fact, we don't know that there were three. There were three gifts that they brought, but there could have been a larger number. It might even only have been two of these wise men. So Matthew hasn't given us the details that tradition has filled in. Uh, so I'm sorry if that spoils some of your appreciation of this passage, but want to be faithful to what it actually says. But at the same time, it is quite remarkable that these men come to worship Jesus. Uh, After all, these are pagan priests. These are people from far away. Uh, Yes, Jerusalem might have been on the kind of routes for journeying between Mesopotamia and uh, Egypt, which were the dominant powers in the ancient world and and uh, uh and so it might have been a significant place. it mightn't have been that unusual to see exotic people from the east traveling through, but it certainly was unusual for these exotic people to turn up and ask the question, "Where is he who has been born king of the Jews?" That was not an everyday occurrence. We saw his star when it rose now again, we don't know. Exactly, what that means was this a coming together of planets in alignment? Was it a new star that appeared in the sky? Was it a new configuration of the stars? But something had changed in these men's reading of the stars. Various people have come up with different theories as to what that star of Bethlehem was, uh, and and that's really not something that I'm going to go into in this podcast. You can look that up if you like. Um, but certainly they have seen something changing and their interpretation of it was that it signified a new king had been born, the king of the Jews. Quite remarkable that, that it's these pagan men from the far away who, who appreciate, who recognise the birth of the Messiah. Why did they think that a star would symbolise the birth of the Messiah? Well, uh, it's possible that this is something that God revealed through their pagan worship. God is capable of speaking to people, of course, even those who are outside uh, his, his people and uh, who are beyond the, the words of the scriptures. But at the same time, it's quite possible that they might have had access to some of the Hebrew scriptures. Perhaps from the time of the exile, when there were uh, when the Jewish people were living in Babylon, or uh, at the time of Jesus, there would still have been Jewish people living in Babylon. Not all came back back after the exile, um, uh, and so it's possible that they had access to those scriptures, and it's possible that they were thinking about a verse from the Book of Numbers, Numbers chapter twenty four, verse seventeen, which is part of the prophecy of Balaam, the the pagan prophet. Uh, from Moab, if you remember um, Balaam. He's perhaps most remembered because of his donkey who spoke to him to warn him about an angel in the road. But that verse in Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 says I see him but not now I behold him but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now uh, is that a prophecy about the Messiah? Well like many Old Testament prophecies it probably had an immediate or sooner fulfillment with the kings who would come in Israel. Uh, and he would subjugate Moab kings in David's line, for example. But All of these Old Testament prophecies look forward ultimately to a greater fulfillment. So it's possible that that verse is speaking about the star of Bethlehem. It's certainly possible that the Magi thought that that's what what it was. Uh, But we really don't know. We don't know what their calculations were, how they came to that conclusion. What we do see, however, is, is one of these echoes again in Matthew of the blessing of God coming to the nations through Jesus. As I said in the first episode in the series, we get a sense of that in the genealogy with the women from uh, pagan women who become part of the story of of Jesus' ancestry. And we see it at the end of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus commissions his disciples to make uh, uh, disciples from all nations. So it's another echo, isn't it, of that blessing that will come from Israel and through Israel's Messiah to people from all nations. Um, they come and ask in Jerusalem, where else would you ask for a king, of course, but Herod the king is troubled. Now, Herod comes out in this chapter as the kind of pantomime villain of, of the nativity play. He's the bad guy. Uh, and and actually, uh, he is portrayed badly in this chapter. He kills these innocent children in Bethlehem. Uh, but that really is the Herod that we read about in history. He is known to history as a great builder. He uh, had this massive project to restore and expand the temple complex in Jerusalem, which was still ongoing at the time of Jesus' uh, ministry. 30 years later, even though Herod the Great, this Herod was dead, Uh, Long before he died, as you read in the passage, not long after Jesus was born. But that project continued and he built some other massive uh, stoneworks across the region that he ruled. He was a puppet king in many ways, uh, appointed by the the Romans. But he did have real power in his territories and uh, he was close to the Roman emperors. He uh, was a man of some significance, um, not pure Jewish. He was partly of Jewish descent but partly of Edomite descent, descended from Esau, the son of the the older son of Jacob, of Isaac rather, who passed over his birthright to his brother Jacob. Anyway, so this Herod was um, a, a man who loved power, a man who had reason to feel insecure because he was not a purebred Jew and he certainly wasn't a legitimate descendant of King David. So uh, when he hears this, he's troubled and he gets together the priests and scribes to inquire where the Christ was to be born. You get the sense that although he was Jewish, um, at least he practiced the Jewish religion and was partially Jewish by ancestry, uh, Herod was not very familiar with the scriptures. He needs others to tell him and they answer Bethlehem. They quote, or rather uh, Matthew quotes, that this is fulfilling what the prophet has written, or they say that uh, from Micah chapters five, chapter 5 verses 2 and 4, this prophecy that Bethlehem and a small village will be significant because a ruler will come who will shepherd his people, God's people Israel. Now, as we come across this, this uh, quotation It's worth just pausing to say that Matthew uses the Old Testament in different ways in this chapter. He talks, as we saw already in the second episode, uh, where we had the quote from Isaiah chapter 7 about Emmanuel. He applies that to the birth of Jesus. And in this chapter, four times we read about the Old Testament being fulfilled, but in different ways. So here, this uh, reference from Micah. Matthew is clearly saying and the priests were saying that this is a direct fulfilment of that prophecy. Micah prophesied about uh, Bethlehem and uh, it came true. That was referring, God was referring through him to the birth of Jesus. As with all prophecies, again, it might have had a more immediate uh, reference and fulfilment, but it was certainly looking forward to the Messiah. But when we get to some of the other references from the Old Testament in this chapter, it's not so much a direct fulfillment uh, and I'll explain that as we go along. But the Jewish people at the time knew that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And of course Mary and Joseph, as Luke's gospel tells us but not Matthew, uh, had made the journey from Nazareth to come to Bethlehem which was Joseph's ancestral town. It seems from Matthew's account in this chapter that they would quite happily have stayed in Bethlehem, except that they felt they had to leave back to uh, Galilee, to Nazareth, uh, as it was a safer place. Uh, And God warned Joseph in a dream, the third dream that Joseph has, uh, where God speaks to him. So uh, that's where the Messiah is going to be born, in Bethlehem. Herod is told. And so he concocts this plan. He brings the Magi, the wise men, uh, and he finds out when the star had appeared. That becomes significant later because when he kills the infants in Bethlehem, he kills all of the ones under two years old. That suggests that it's two years since the wise men saw the star whether they set out immediately at that time or whether they had spent some time researching and then set out on their journey, uh, it it does mean that it's possible that Jesus was already a young child by this time. But we can't be sure about that. Sometimes people say, well look it says in Matthew 2 that the wise men came to the house and Jesus was born in a stable so he, he can't have just been born. But of course the Bible doesn't say Jesus was born in a stable. Luke doesn't use that word at all. Matthew doesn't use it. Uh, we read in Luke that there was no room, traditionally translated in the inn, but actually the word is in the guest, or there was no guest room available for them. And most likely when they arrived in Bethlehem, they would have been put in the part of the house that was lower down that where the animals would have been kept. They certainly wouldn't have been put out in a cave or in a stable. They would have been brought in with eastern hospitality to the home of one of Joseph's relatives, um, but they they weren't able to use the guest room because that was already occupied. So Jesus was almost certainly born in a house. So the reference to the house doesn't tell us what age he was or how soon this was after he was born, but it is possible that it was some time later, and he may even have been a toddler by this stage. We just don't know. But anyway, Um, Herod has this plan. He he of course wants to get rid of this child and so he tells them to go and to find the baby or the child and uh, then to, to tell him so that he can worship him. But like the pantomime villain, we can almost imagine the sneer in his face. And we know what's truly happening because we know how the story pans out. Uh, He has no intention of worshipping the child. Here is a man who is determined to cling on to his earthly power. He will not give way to God and to God's Messiah. It's tragic. The man who called himself king of the Jews would not give way to the true king in David's line, the Messiah. And of course, Herod serves as a reminder to us of how easily we resist the true king, God, because we want to be king in our own lives. We might not be a Herod who go and slaughter children, but we are uh, ruthless in our clinging to power clinging to our own autonomy, our right to decide for ourselves, which is the very essence of sin to reject God and seek to be our own king. Well, the wise men go and uh, they follow the star and it came to rest over the place where the child was. That's an interesting reference. There's something that changes again in the heavens that affirms to them where Jesus is born. Uh, again, all of those attempts to describe what the star is. Uh, I'm not sure that they can adequately explain this. It seems there's something supernatural about this. But certainly they're able to identify the place using the star. And they rejoice with great joy when they see it. They go into the house. They see the child with Mary. Uh, Joseph doesn't even get mentioned at this point, And they fall down and worship him. Notice that it doesn't say they fall down and worship them. And I say that because, of course, sadly, some point in the history of the church, people began to pray to Mary and to adore her and uh, almost to put her on a level with her her son. It's not Mary at all that they worship. It's Jesus. He alone is worthy of worship. He is God incarnate. The fact that they worship him, quite remarkable. In, in Matthew's account, they're the first ones to worship Jesus pagans from the east. And they open their treasures and give him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Significant gifts. You may well have heard the traditional interpretations, gold fit for a king, frankincense for a a priest. The priests, of course, used incense in offering the symbolic of the prayers of God's people. uh, And Myrrh is a, a, a spice that would have been used to anoint dead bodies, to preserve them. And, and so symbolic of, of his funeral, his death. Here is the child who is king and priest and who will die as a sacrifice for sins. We might be reading too much into it to see that, whether they would have thought in those terms or whether these were simply costly gifts uh, that to honour him, that Mary and Joseph Uh, might have sold and and used or that uh, were symbolic of of reverence we don't know but but I think there there is certainly a, a some kind of echo in there that makes us think of the life that is in front of Jesus and his place in God's purpose king priest and sacrifice but they are warned by God not to go back to Herod so they go a different route back to their own country. Again it's interesting isn't it they disappear off the scene we wonder did they not follow up on this child but perhaps all that they saw was a king of of the Jews but then the word worship seems to say that they saw something more than that and I suppose we we don't know what became of them other than what the traditions suggest. But after they had left the angel of the an angel of the Lord appears again second dream for Joseph He's already had the one in, in, in chapter one where the angel told him to marry Mary. Uh, and this dream, the angel says, go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you Herod is about to kill the child uh, to search and kill him. Now, of course, Herod does that. And uh, we don't read about this event, the slaughtering of the innocents in, um, in Bethlehem in uh, historical records, but that's not necessarily surprising. Historical records are very limited. Bethlehem was not a large town, so it might not have been a very large number of children. It may not have been significant enough to go on those historical records, other than the one we have here in Matthew's Gospel. But notice what it says that The going into Egypt was to fulfill what was said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea 11, verse 1. Now, here, this is not like Micah's prophecy about Bethlehem. That was clearly a messianic prophecy, and the Jewish people at the time of Jesus knew that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, this one is is not. For saying that when Hosea said out of Egypt, I called my son, he was thinking of the Messiah. If you read Hosea chapter 11, you wouldn't get that sense that it's about a future king. It's clearly about the nation of Israel. It's an echo back to the time when God brought Israel out of Egypt through Moses. Uh, but what Matthew is telling us here is not that Hosea was foretelling the Messiah but that Jesus' life is following the pattern of Israel. Israel is described as God's son, brought out of Egypt. Here now is the ultimate son of God, God incarnate, the son, God the son, now being brought out of Egypt. And and, and so we're seeing the fulfilment of the Old Testament. I've said this in the previous two episodes as well. We see it in the genealogy. We see it uh, in the reference to Isaiah in, the, uh, in chapter 1, Emmanuel, that prophecy. We see it again here. Uh, And so perhaps when the wise men are thought of as kings, that's pushing it too far. But the idea that those Old Testament prophecies of the nations worshipping the Messiah are beginning to come true, we can certainly accept that. And here we're seeing that Jesus' life will follow the story of Israel. As we read on, we'll see how that continues. But beginning with the fact that he's taken into Egypt by a Joseph, by a dreaming Joseph. If that confuses you, go and listen to the second episode, because there I explain that there is a parallel between Joseph, son of Jacob, and husband of Mary, adoptive father of Jesus, who dreams, God speaks to him in dreams, and he takes Jesus, the descendant of Judah, into Egypt and then brings him out of Egypt. Joseph, the dreamer, son of Jacob, preserves the life of the line of promise, the seed of Abraham. That's exactly what Joseph, the other son of Jacob, in the book of Genesis did. He was the one who rescued Judah, the ancestor of Jesus, and his other brothers too, by giving them uh, refuge in Egypt in the time of famine. And God then brought them out of Egypt later, 400 years later, in the time of of moses so you see again the story of israel is being fulfilled except that jesus will perfectly fulfill god's will in a way that the nation of israel could not the third reference to the old testament comes in verses 17 and 18 after we read about herod killing these little children then it says then then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet jeremiah And this is a quote from Jeremiah 31 verse 15, speaking about weeping and mourning in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, of course, was the mother of Benjamin and uh, of Joseph, um, but not the mother of Judah, which again seems strange because Bethlehem, at least at the time of Jesus, was a a town or a village of, of Judah. Uh, that's even in the Old Testament, that's true. That's where David, King David, was born, and he was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, so, in what sense is Jeremiah 31 being fulfilled? Well, when Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 31, he's referring to the people of uh, Judah being taken into exile. That's what causes Rachel to weep at what is happening to her descendants. Um, but there, Rachel, although she was the mother only of two of the sons of Jacob, she's being seen symbolically as the mother of the nation. And and uh, it is possible, by the way, that Rachel was buried near Benjamin. There was certainly a Jewish tradition that says that, although it's not clear from the Old Testament. Um, and so Matthew is making a connection with Rachel's grief in the sense that here is another instance of God's people, the people of Israel, being oppressed just as they were by the nations in the time of the exile, just as they were uh, even in the time of, of Abraham and his family when they were under the uh, oppression of the nations. They, they didn't have the land that God had given this is a another instance of the kind of weeping that happened in the time of Jeremiah when the people were being taken into exile. It's happening again now in the time of Judah, or the time of Jesus, rather. As as this King Herod, supposedly the king of the Jews, is killing some of his own people. Just another instance of what it is that the Messiah has to come to put right, to deliver his people from all who would oppress, and ultimately as we saw in chapter 1, in the words of the angel, to save them from their sins. Well, the chapter ends with Joseph bringing the people back after Herod has died and taking them to the land of Israel. Uh, and then they settle or they plan initially to go to Bethlehem. But they uh, hear that Archelaus, the son of, of Herod, was reigning in his place. And so they're afraid to go To uh, the place where he is ruling in case I suppose Herod has passed on word to his son. And so they're warned in a dream again, Joseph's third dream, um, or rather fourth dream isn't it? Because uh, he has a dream uh, when the angel tells him to take Mary in chapter 1, then he has a dream telling him to go to Egypt and a dream to say come out of Egypt and then another dream to say go to Galilee. And there he goes and lives in the city of Nazareth so that it might be fulfilled again uh, through what was said through the prophets, verse 23. But you might notice that the wording is slightly different here. Rather than it saying he was what was said through the prophets, or even naming the prophet as he does in the case of Jeremiah, but not Micah earlier, it says the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Uh, And it's not a direct quote, although the ESV that I read from puts it in speech marks, he should be called a Nazarene. Uh, other versions like the NIV don't, and that's because we don't find anywhere in the Old Testament uh, that says he will be called a Nazarene. In fact, we don't seem see any particular um, resemblance of, of that in the Old Testament at all, no reference to Nazareth. Um, but we do see in the Old Testament references to Galilee being a significant place that God's blessing would come from. In Isaiah, it says that um, there would be Um, there would be the uh, fulfillment of or rather that that would be in Galilee of the Gentiles that the light would rise that would come to bring blessing to God's people and that's in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 that's the chapter that it goes on to talk about the son who would be born so it seems here that Matthew is not directly quoting the Old Testament He's not saying that the Old Testament said the Messiah would come from Nazareth, but he is recognizing that Nazareth is in Galilee. The Old Testament talked about the light shining in Galilee with the son who would be born, Isaiah 9, and that Nazareth is a particularly obscure town, so much so that as we read elsewhere uh, in the New Testament, that people said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So it's a, an emphasis on the fact that the Messiah will come from an obscure place in Galilee uh, and, and in an unexpected way. So just to recap, we have four references to the prophets in this chapter. One which is a, a direct quotation from Micah that is saying that Micah foretold the Messiah would be born in uh, Bethlehem. That's a, a direct pr- prophecy about the Messiah. And then uh, the one that says that my son comes out of Egypt, which is telling me, telling us that he is um, fulfilling the pattern of the story of Israel. That's from Hosea 11. Uh, And and so Jesus is the new Israel who will be faithful where Israel failed. Then we have the reference from Jeremiah, which is saying that history repeats itself in the oppression of God's people and the mourning at the killing of innocent children. And then lastly, at the end of the chapter, the least direct of all, saying that the prophets described a Messiah who is exactly the kind of person who would be called a Nazarene, who will be brought uh, up in Nazareth and would be associated with that uh, town that was looked down upon. So Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament, Jesus bringing blessing to the nations through the Magi, Jesus turning upside down the kingdoms of this world with kings like Herod, who were obsessed with power and legacy and a name for themselves and great buildings of stone. Jesus is going to turn that on its head by building his church, as he will say later on in Matthew, not from stones, but from living stones, like Peter, who confesses that he's the Christ. Jesus, who will not come from the center of power in Jerusalem, but from the margins in Nazareth and from little Bethlehem. But Jesus, who is fulfilling the Old Testament in every sense of the word. He's fulfilling its hopes. He's fulfilling its pattern of subversive salvation from the margins. He's fulfilling its hope for those who mourn. He's fulfilling the story of Israel faithfully where Israel failed, beginning with being brought out of Egypt. And he is fulfilling the direct prophecies for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem.